This is KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And today, on Wednesday, we are sponsoring a weekly shiur by Rav uh, Dr. Avi Wolfish, who's been doing a lot of work in the last few years on the study of Mishnah specifically, giving a weekly shiur on reading Mishnah. Our ninth shiur in Masechet Rosh Hashanah will conclude our discussion of Rosh Hashanah Perakimu and begin the discussion of Rosh Hashanah Perak Dalit. We saw last time that the body of the chapter, Perakimu, uh, Mishnayot Bet through Zayin, talks about the laws of Shofar and the structure of these Mishnayot is from the outside in. It's from the source of the shofar, then moving to the shofar itself, its shape and uh, its uh, completeness, and uh, moving on from there to the sound of the shofar. The sound of the shofar has to be a pure sound, uh, emerging only from the shofar, and reach the person unmediated by anything in between, any echoes. And finally, when the shofar is heard by the person, then it has to reach the heart. The person's heart has to approve uh, uh, the hearing of the shofar, join in with the, uh, the hearing of the shofar, uh, and that's the halakha of kavanat halev. So, uh, we have this movement from the outside in. This is then completed by the Agadic Mishnah, Mishnah Chet, which moves from the inside out. In other words, the heart that halachically in Mishnah Zayin has been required to uh, be directed to the hearing of the Shofar and the fulfillment of the Mitzvah, the same heart in Mishnah Chet, uh, following the precedent of Moshe Rabbeinu's hands and of the uh, brazen serpent, the Nechash Nechoshet, uh, the heart has to be directed upwards towards one's father, uh, in heaven. And so we have a dual movement from the outside in and then from the heart up to one's father in heaven. And, and what clearly emerges from here is that the shofar is regarded here as an instrument for producing the kavanat halev. First of all, the kavanat halev on the halachic level of fulfilling the mitzvah, but no less importantly on the agadic level for uh, uh, bringing a person to direct his heart heavenward towards his, uh, towards his father in heaven. Well, we'll deal, uh, a little more in detail with the precise meaning of what it means to direct one's heart to one's father in heaven and, and how the Mishnah presents the consequences of, uh, uh, of such an action. We also saw that, um, that, uh, this section of the Mishnah divides into two. Uh, uh, the first part of it, which, which talks mostly about kasher and, and pasul, which, which kind of shofar can be blown, which kind cannot be blown. Uh, towards the end of that, uh, in the second part of Mishnah Vav, the Mishnah starts talking about, uh, the sound of the shofar, not only the shofar itself, but the sound of the shofar, and begins the formulation of im. 
if it's ma'akevet atkiyah, if it uh, affects the sound of the tkiyah, then it's pasul, and if not, then it's kasher. And this pattern of im, uh, if yes, then such, and if not, then the opposite, uh, continues through the next Mishnah, Mishnah Zayin, which talks not in terms of kasher and pasul, but rather talks in terms of yatsah and lo yatsah, did he or did he not fulfill the mitzvah, and continues into the Agadic Mishnah as well, which is already talking not in terms of having fulfilled the mitzvah, but in terms of the Agadic consequences. In other words, the, uh, is the person successful in his endeavor, or uh, or is he not? Is he delivered from his uh, distress, or, or is he not? So that then gives us, uh, as we saw last time, a new perspective on how Mishnachet completes and concludes uh, the main halachic session, uh, section of the chapter. Uh, we also talked about how para, uh, Mishnah Aleph fits uh, fits into the chapter, and uh, we noted in passing a point that we'll come back to uh, later on in our next shiur, the pattern of Yachid v'Rabim, Mishnah Aleph ending with Ein HaYachid Ne'eman you can't have an individual judge proclaiming the new month. It must be three judges. Uh, and uh, this is then um, echoed by the uh, antonym Rabim. The antonym of Yachid is Rabim, which appears in the very last line. The Perak, person who is not obligated in Emitzvah cannot fulfill discharge the obligation on behalf of the Rabim. Uh, we also noted and uh, discussed in greater detail the connection between the opening of Mishnah Aleph and the opening section of Mishnah Chet, namely, Ra'uhu Beitin V'chol Yisrael. This creates a, a new um, mode of sanctifying the new month, something that did not appear in the first two chapters, namely, where you can sanctify the new month without without witnesses. Yisrael, as the Gemara notes, O If instead of Ra'u Beitin Yisrael, instead of that you had Nechkeruedim, and either way, So we have then the Mishnah teaching us that Nechkeruedim is really only second best. The, the best way of sanctifying the new month would be actually if the court and all of Israel uh, saw it. Obviously, all of Israel here can't be taken literally, but presumably this is the same as we had in Perak Bet Mishnah Zayin, Rosh Beitin V'chol Ha'am. Okay? In other words, all of Israel means a crowd of people who are uh, sitting uh, in attendance uh, uh, upon the court. And so, you have the court and the people, the same way that in the head of the court proclaims Mikudash and the people uh, repeat Mikudash, Mikudash, and it's actually their repetition of Mikudash, Mikudash that completes the sanctification of the new moon. So too, Ra'uhu Beitin B'chol Yisrael. In order to manage without, without witnesses, it's preferable for uh, uh, people representing the people as a whole, the, 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 the nation the community, to be present together with the court, and when they sight the new moon, then they can immediately 
uh, proceed to proclaim mikudash. They don't need any procedure of investigating witnesses because they they saw what they saw with their own eyes is certainly uh, uh, no less significant than what they know of because because they investigated the witnesses. So this is a new wrinkle in kiddush hachodesh that we taught at the beginning of the chapter. And this is echoed by what we learn at the end of the chapter, that uh, um, uh, that the purpose of blowing the shofar, like the purpose of Moshe's hands and of the nechash nechoshet, is for people to look upwards. So the chapter opens with looking upwards and closes with with looking upwards, and. Uh, we're then given not only uh, uh, from a practical standpoint a new aspect of Kiddush HaChodesh, namely that you can sanctify the new month not by hearing the witnesses but by seeing the new moon with your own eyes. Uh, we're also taught that seeing the new moon uh, has tremendous religious significance. When you see the new moon, that, like the Shofar, also helps to direct one's heart heavenwards like the famous uh, drasha of Rabbi Ishmael talking either about Kiddush HaChodesh uh, as in the Mechilta or about uh, Kiddush Levana as in the Gemara saying that uh, uh, that this practice uh, brings Israel face to face with their father in heaven once uh, uh, once a month. Now it's, uh, there's another way of looking at the connection between the first Mishnah and the last Mishnah of the chapter, and this will also link, link us up with a, an interesting uh, sub-theme that runs through uh, the chapter as a whole. Um, the first halacha in Perakim Mishnah Aleph really teaches us two new halachot. One of them is the one that we mentioned, the halacha that you can sanctify over sighting and not only over hearing the testimony to witnesses. Uh, the second one is that you actually have to proclaim Mikudash. We learned in, in the second chapter that there's a mitzvah of proclaiming Mikudash. Uh, we did not know from there necessarily that if you don't actually pronounce the word Mikudash that the date is not sanctified. That we know only from Paragimel Mishnah, if lo hispiku lomar mikudash ad shechashecha, arezem mu'ubar. If they did not manage to uh, get the word mikudash out before night fell, then it doesn't matter that they saw the new moon, but uh, they didn't sanctify it. And, and therefore, the following day becomes the sanctified day. So there's really an interesting combination here between the two senses. The sense of vision... Okay, the, the, and the sense of hearing. The sense of vision is really the integral part of Kiddush HaChodesh. And as we saw in Perak Bet of, of the, of the Masachet, that the point of hearing the witnesses and of determining the new moon on, on, uh, uh, on the basis of the witnesses is actually the, the sense of vision. We talked about the centrality of the sense of vision that uh, goes to the court and from the court goes out to the people uh, as a whole. Now here at the beginning of Paragimel, we are given new meaning to the sense uh, uh, of vision, both halachically and uh, agadically. Uh, 
and we're also uh, giving a new meaning to the sense of hearing. The sense of hearing is not only to hear the witnesses and to accept their testimony, it's also to proclaim. Okay? Again, we know about the proclaiming from Perkbet, but this is given new significance. It's made into a, a, an integral and vital part of Kiddush only here in the Perak. Now, this interplay of the senses of vision and of hearing uh, has an interesting echo at the end of the chapter because the end of the chapter focuses entirely on the sense of vision because uh, we're told about uh, looking at Moshe's hands, looking at the Nechash Nechoshet, but the context in which the Mishnah brings this is in order to explain the mitzvah of hearing the shofar. So, interestingly, the Mishnah is comparing the results of having heard the shofar to the results of having seen the hands of Moshe and the Nechash Again, we have an interesting interplay between the senses of hearing and of vision. Either sense can be a way of directing the heart towards one's Father in Heaven. Now, uh, this is a theme that actually, if you look closely, uh, runs through a good part of, of the chapter because the Shofar uh, clearly focuses on the sense of hearing and, and what's crucially important about the Shofar is you must hear the unsullied sound of the Shofar. We see this in Mishnayot Vav <coughs> and Zayin. But uh, if you look closely, you see that the Mishnah also teaches you that the sense of vision is an important part of the mitzvah of shofar as well. So that the shofar should have a certain shape. The shofar, uh, depending on which festival it is, if you're talking about the shofar in the Mikdash, should have uh, some kind of uh, uh, gold covering. The shofar should be positioned in a certain place in relation to the, to the chatzotzrot. Now, all of these halachot teach us that the shofar is not only to be heard, but also to be seen. And the way in which you visualize the shofar is part of the message of the, of the shofar as well. So if Kiddush HaChodesh focuses on vision, but also requires the sense of hearing, uh, if Kiddush HaChodesh uh, requires uh, mostly vision and uh, involves hearing as well, so... Um, the end of the cha- the the continuation of the chapter tells us that shofar focuses on hearing, but it also involves the sense of uh, uh, the sense of vision as well. And this gives us yet another perspective on what the first and last mishnayot of the chapter are doing when they when they frame the chapter. And uh, one final point on on uh, uh, as far as the placing of the first Mishnah, uh, the first Mishnah, by interacting in, in the ways that we've seen with the other Mishnayot in the chapter, and particularly with the last Mishnah in the chapter, is teaching us that there's an interesting interplay between Kiddush HaChodesh and the blowing of the Shofar. We should recall that the blowing of the Shofar is also done on Rosh Chodesh. Not only a Rosh Chodesh, but the Rosh Chodesh, the Rosh Chodesh, which also serves as the beginning of the year. So, it would appear then that the Mishnah wants us to understand 
that blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is not unrelated to the uh, mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh. The mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh, month after month, uh, brings us in touch with Avinu Shabashamayim. It brings the community together. It reinforces the um, authority structure of the of the community. All of these things uh, uh, are done through Kiddush HaChodesh. Um, and blowing the shofar reinforces these ideas. Blowing the shofar is also something that brings the community together. Let's recall that in Mishnayot, Gimel, uh, Dalit, and probably Hay, the shofar that's blown is blown in the Beit HaMikdash, and in uh, Mishnah Zayin, it's blown in a Beit Knesset. So there is a communal and even national framework for blowing the shofar. That's why it can also be compared in Mishnah Chet to the hands of Moshe and the Nechash Nechoshet, which are also communal salvation and not just not just individual salvation. Um, and um, so the, the blowing of the shofar also relates to this uh, communal point. Uh, and the shofar, uh, insofar as it directs one's heart to one's Father in Heaven, also repeats and uh, presumably intensifies the directing of a person's eyes heavenward and of a person's heart towards uh, uh, towards his Father in Heaven. Okay, I'd like to conclude the uh, discussion of this chapter by taking a closer look at what Mishnachet actually has to say about the directing of one's heart heavenward. And uh, in order to uh, have a better understanding of what the Mishnah is doing here, uh, it, uh, it's worth comparing the Mishnah to two parallel sources, both of them uh, regarding the hands of Moshe, uh, and they appear in two Tanaitic Midrashim, the Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael and the Mechilta of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Both of them present uh, uh, a picture of what it is that Moshe is doing when he raises his hands, that in some ways parallel the Mishnah, but uh, there are some interesting differences among these three sources. So I'll read what the Mechiltot, Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael and of uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, have to say about the hands of Moshe, and then we'll discuss some of the differences. Uh, the Mechiltot say, V'chi yadav shal Moshe megabrot et Yisrael, O yadav shal Moshe shovrot et Amalek. Okay, do the hands of Moshe cause Israel to be victorious, or uh, break the resistance of Amalek? Ela calls man shahaya Moshe, I'm reading from the Chilta of Rabbi Ishmael now, calls man shahaya Moshe magbia et yadav klape lemaalan, Hayum Yisrael mistaklimbo umaminim b'misha pikeret Moshe la'asotken v'amakom osel ahem nisim u'gvurot. As long as Moshe was raising his hands uh, upwards, Israel would be looking at him, and they would believe in the one b'mi, the one who commanded Moshe <coughs> to do so, and. God, Hamakom, would perform for them uh, miracles and deliverances. 
In the Mechilta de Rashbi, it reads a little differently. Bismanchi Israel osin ritzonoshel makom. When Israel does the will of makom, of God, umaminim and believe, bimasha pikdoa makom Moshe in what uh, God commanded Moshe, then hamakom oselahen nisimugvorot. Then God will perform for them miracles and great deliverances. So, uh, both the Mechilta and the Mechilta de Rashbi start off with uh, a similar premise. Uh, there's an interesting difference between them that we'll note in just a minute. Uh, both of them say that the point of Moshe raising the hands is for Israel to look at him. Mistaklim bo, in the language of the uh, of the Mechilta, they would look at Moshe's hands and they would say to themselves, why is Moshe raising his hands? That seems to be a rather strange form of behavior. And the answer in both cases is they would believe. They would believe, according to the Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael, in the one who commanded Moshe to do so. And according to the Mechilta of Rashbi, they would believe in what God commanded Moshe to do. Um, the Midrash scholar Menachem Kahana has suggested, I think correctly, that there is a, a very interesting difference between the Mechilta and the Mechilta de Rashbi here, that both of them are saying that Israel would have faith. They would see Moshe doing the strange action. They would know that God commanded him to do it. Otherwise, why would Moshe be doing so? Interestingly, by the way, nowhere in the Torah is there any indication that uh, Moshe actually was commanded to do this. But uh, both Mechiltot assume that that's the case. Moshe would not have done this of his own accord. He must have been commanded. And Israel figured that out, understood that he's doing this in response to a divine command. So in the Mechilta, they believe in God. They say, if God commanded him, so that means God is involved. If God is involved, we believe in him. And then the belief brings forth the result that God now performs miracles. In other words... God will not perform a miracle for you unless you believe in Him. In the Mechilta de Rashbi, they believed not in God, they believed in God's command. They believe in what God commanded Moshe to do. They say, if God commanded this, He must have had a reason. This must be an efficacious act, raising the hands. And once they believe that what Moshe did is something divinely ordained and therefore efficacious, then God will perform uh, miracles for them. So, the difference between them, you could say, is sort of like the difference between Hasidut and, uh, you know, and, uh, and a more Litvak type of philosophy. Whether we're talking about the power of Halakha, the power of the commandment, or whether you're talking about the power of God Himself. Are they believing in the command of God, or are they believing in God Himself? But what they both have in common is that the point of Moshe raising the hands is to bring Israel to believe, and by bringing Israel to believe, then God can now perform miracles for them. If we look in the Mishnah, we'll see the Mishnah differs quite radically from both Mechiltot uh, in several ways. First of all, the, the, um, uh, the Mishnah doesn't say that Israel looked at Moshe or at Moshe's hands, but rather, Mistaklim klapei ma'ala. 
Israel looked upwards. And the point seems to be that people are not looking at Moshe's hands, but they're using Moshe's hands as a sign point. A sign point a, a sort of as though if I were uh, to stand somewhere and point upward, then presumably people coming by would not look at my hand. They'd briefly glance at my hand, and then they'd look upward to see what I'm pointing at. So that's how Moshe's hands are understood in the Mishnah, not as something for the people to look at, but for something for the people to look through. It serves a, a, as, as a way of directing their hearts heavenwards. They look upwards and then they direct their hearts upwards. It doesn't say they believe. The word belief does not appear in the Mishnah. What happens is they direct their hearts upwards and now we come to what is perhaps the most significant difference between the two. Both Mechiltot conclude with Hamakom Oselahem Nisimu Gvurot. And at the end of our Mishnah, and not only do we not have miracles or deliverances, we also don't even have the name of God. Hayumit Gabrim, or in the Nechash Nechoshet, Hayumit Rapim. Okay, in other words, it, seem, it seems the Mishnah presents it as, as uh, almost a a, a natural event and not uh, and not a supernatural event, not a divine de- deliverance. Uh, this point was noted by a uh, scholar uh, alone, Goshen Gottstein, uh, in his uh, doctoral dissertation on the Father in Heaven, the use of the imagery of the Father in Heaven in in uh, um, in Talmudic uh, sources. And he was very puzzled by this because he said the whole question with which we opened was a kind of anti-magical uh, question. Can Moshe's hands really have this magical quality of bringing about deliverance? And so in, in the Mechiltot, the answer, of course, is no. The, the point of the hands is to create a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality links the people with God, and by linking the people with God, uh, God can now perform a deliverance. And so, there's nothing magical whatsoever about the hands of Moshe. But in the Mishnah, it seems that God is absent from the final deliverance. And so, have we really laid to rest the, the boogeyman of, of uh, uh, some kind of magical impact of Moshe's hands? Uh, Goshen's uh, answer uh, uh, to this is, basically to radically reread the Mishnah, which I don't think is warranted. I think we can understand what the Mishnah is doing by simply paying close attention to, what the, to, to the Mishnah's argument. The Mishnah also argues that the point of Moshe's hands is to link the people with God. But the link to God in the Mishnah is quite different from the link of the people to God in uh, the two Mechiltot. The link of the people to God in the Mechiltot is a link of belief. And the point is for God to perform a deliverance. In other words, we're talking about a divine deliverance which requires one thing and one thing only of man, and that is believe. If you believe, God will do the job for you. The Mishnah does not have God doing the job for you. In the Mishnah, people do the job for themselves. Okay? Hayu mitgabrim, hayu noflim, hayu mitrapim, hayu nimokim. It's the people who deliver themselves either from the uh, either from the enemy of Amalek or from the uh, 
natural uh, uh, medical problem of uh, uh, of serpents' venom. Uh, it's the people who deliver themselves. But what is the condition for the people to deliver themselves? The condition is that they direct their hearts heavenward. Okay. In other words, the point of Moshe's hands is not to hotter the people from delivering themselves. They have to, in the end, do the work themselves. They have to fight. They have to heal themselves. But they do so by directing their hearts heavenward. By directing their hearts heavenward, they derive some kind of power from God that enables them, in fact, to deliver themselves. Now, uh, I, I like to characterize the difference between the two mechiltot and the Mishnah is being basically the difference between the Haredi approach, or particularly the Satmar approach, to uh, to the coming of the Mashiach, and the uh, religious Zionist approach. The religious Zionist approach is that man by his actions can help promote the coming of the Mashiach, okay? by bringing the Jewish people back to the land of Israel, by uh, by creating a society here, by creating Jewish life here, we advance the ultimate goal of the of the deliverance. And so, human initiative is an integral part of how the Mashiach ultimately will come and how the divine uh, salvation will actually occur. Where, as opposed to the Haredi and particularly the Satmar belief in which man's job is just to believe. Man's job is not to do, but to wait for God to do. And what you have to do is simply foster your belief in uh, divine deliverance and ultimately God will do so. Um, now, the Mishnah uh, selected of these three versions of the explanation of the hands of Moshe, it's clear that the Mishnah could not have selected either Mechilta version because both Mechilta versions are missing the key element which which serves as a link between the hands of Moshe and the third chapter of Rosh Hashanah, namely Kavanat Alev. Directing the hard heavenward appears only in the Mishnah, not in either Mechiltot. So for technical reasons, it's clear that the Mishnah could only choose this version of the Midrash about Moshe's hands. But it seems to me that uh, it's not only for technical and associative reasons that this version was chosen, but for philosophical reasons as well. As we saw at length in the first two chapters of Masechet Rosh Hashanah, one of the key themes of the Masechet is the partnership between God and man. Man is the one who is enjoined to sanctify the new moons, uh, and as much as he is required to take God into account, as much as he's required to work as hard as possible to sanctify the right day, the day in which the new moon actually was sighted. Nonetheless, ultimately, it's his responsibility. And this theme of a partnership between God and man is now echoed at the end of, uh, at the end of chapter 3 in Mishnachet, where we learn that the purpose of Moshe's hands and, by extension, the purpose of uh, the blowing of the shofar Okay, is not to cause man to simply look heavenward and say, okay, God, I believe in you, now go do your thing. Uh, the purpose of uh, the shofar, as in Kiddush HaChodesh, 
is for man to draw inspiration, to make sure that when man does his activity and when man seeks to deliver himself, he always does so in tandem with God, looking heavenwards the whole time, and only when he does that will he have the divine sanction and presumably the divine assistance that will enable him actually to achieve what he what he's supposed to achieve. Final point I'd like to make about the end of uh, Paragimel is that the end of Paragimel also links us up with the opening of Parak Aleph and specifically with Mishnah Bet. Let's take a close look at what we saw in Parak Aleph Mishnah Bet, uh, which described the four Pirkei Din and the one that concerns us, of course, is Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah says the Mishnah, Perak Aleph Mishnah Bet, Kol ba'ei ha'olam ovrim lefanav kiv numaron, and here I am clearly accepting the reading of numaron, not b'nei maron. Okay, all of the inhabitants of the world come before God like troops, like a military unit, as it says, hayotzer yachad libam ha'mevin kol ma'asehem. Okay, and the source for this is the God who created their hearts together, okay, is also the one who mevin, which presumably here means mitbonein, who uh, scrutinizes all of their actions. Now, the, uh, there are some very interesting connections between this Mishnah and the, which, is, by the way, we should note is also an Agadic Mishnah. The Agadic Mishnah, which presents the judgment on Rosh Hashanah in Perak Aleph Mishnah Bet, um, and uh, is echoed in uh, Perak Mishnah Chet of our chapter, the end of the laws of Shofar. The things that link the two of them are, first of all, the heart. Hayotel Yachad Libam, and we have Kavanat Halev in our Mishnah. Secondly, the military imagery. Okay, the troops filing before the Supreme Judge in Perakalf Mishnah Bet, and the uh, w- Israelite warriors who are battling against Amalek at the end of uh, at the end of the third chapter. Okay, and and uh, finally, the idea of looking, scrutinizing. In our Mishnah, Israel is looking upwards towards God. In Perakalf Mishnah Bet. God is looking downwards towards Israel. Okay, el kol masahem. So these, these two Mishnayot are in a way kind of mirror images of one another. And if we let these two Mishnayot interact, and if we see the Mishnah at the end of our chapter is also describing what happens when you hear the blowing of the shofar, then I think we can see how these two Mishnayot complement uh, one another. Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. Uh, in that respect, it's similar to the war or the, uh, or the Nechash Nechoshet. In other words, the same way as in, in both of those cases, people's lives were hanging in the balance. People's individual lives as well as the uh, law, life of the community of Israel as a whole were hanging in the balance. They could survive or they could die. And the key to survival was to direct one's heart heavenwards. So too, Perakalf Mishnabet describes 
Rosh Hashanah as being also a day when the same warriors that we find at the end of Paragimel, they're all filing before God, and God determines their destiny. Life and death are hanging in the balance. The military commander uh, makes life and death decisions regarding his troops. And when God looks down from the heavens, he sees our hearts, he remembers the heart that he created uh, on the first of Tishrei uh, many, many years ago, and he scrutinizes our actions to see whether our actions justify the heart that God has created for us. And at the end of Paragimel, this same heart that he created, we try to direct heavenward. Okay, We try to direct that heart back towards God because we know that if we direct that heart heavenward and if we look up to heaven, we direct our heart heavenward, we know that then God will bless our actions. The actions that he scrutinizes will be blessed by God and God will grant us deliverance on Rosh Hashanah. So the deliverance that is promised to Israel by directing their hearts heavenward at the time of the hands of Moshe and of the Nechash Nechoshet is echoed when on Rosh Hashanah the blowing of the shofar directs our hearts heavenward and then we are able to stand before God in the judgment and, and be assured that our destiny here will also be a salvation from the danger of the of the divine judgment. Um, okay, that that pretty much concludes our discussion of Paragimel. We'll be coming back to some of these points in uh, connection with Paragdalid. We don't have too much time to begin our discussion of Paragdalid, so let me just uh, first of all request that for the next shiur you read through Perak Dalit and, and uh, know the contents of the chapter, see what the structure is. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll make a few remarks now about uh, how the chapter divides. It's clear that the chapter basically divides into two parts. The first part is the Takanot of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. The first one is the most relevant one to this part of Masachet Rosh Hashanah because it deals with the blowing of the shofar, Takanav Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, that the blowing of shofar can be done on Shabbat in Yavne, even though there's no Beit Mikdash, but it can be done in Yavne instead. Um, and then uh, a whole uh, list of the Takanot of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. And one question that we'll be interested in, in dealing with in our next year is, why are all the Takanot of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai mentioned here? It should be noted in this connection that a couple of these Takanot, the ones in Mishnah Dalid, have to do with Kiddush HaChodesh. So that again suggests an interesting tie-in between Kiddush HaChodesh and the blowing of the Shofar, and in particular because a uh, point for you to look uh, for is that uh, Mishnah Aleph and Mishnah Dalid are linked by certain key words. So look for those key words, and we'll discuss that in the next shiur. The second part of the chapter, Mishnah Hey, through Tet, um, even though the um, the sort of uh, twists and turns in this section of the Mishnah, it's clear that the Mishnah redactor has designed it to be one section because 
Mishnah He and Mishnah Tet both open with the term Seder. Seder Brachot and Seder Tkiot. And the connection between the Brachot and the Tkiot is a, a major theme of this section. Look and see how. Uh, but in any event, Seder Brachot and Seder Tkiot frame this section and, and show us that it's designed all to be one section, even though some of the Mishnayot seem not to belong uh, organically to the uh, uh, to the whole collection of Mishnayot seems to have been added in, but they're added into a, a framework which has a clear structure: the Seder Brachot and the Seder uh, Seder Tkiot. Okay, so we'll pick up with uh, these themes at the beginning of our next and final shiur in this series.